Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm with Dr. Edgardo Perez Morales. He's an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Southern California's David and Dana Dornsiff College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. We're here to discuss his latest book, No Limits to Their Sway, Cartagena's Privateers and the Masterless Caribbean in the Age of Revolutions, which was published by Vanderbilt University in 2018. Welcome to New Books um, in Caribbean Studies, Edgardo. Thank you, Dr. Crawford, and uh, thank you to everybody who is listening. I'm so happy that you agreed to take on this interview. I want to begin by asking you if you could share a little bit about your your intellectual and your professional background. Um, where did you study, and what led you to become a historian? So... Let me um, start by um, sort of like pointing out this oddity about my professional development, which is that I study the Caribbean, um, though, and seafaring peoples of the Caribbean, people who went out to sea to make a living and for other reasons. But I myself am pretty detached from the sort of like sea level societies and Caribbean waters and Caribbean places and islands. I was born in the high mountains of Colombia in the Andes, and I do have a vivid memory and recollection of the first time that I ever saw the ocean, the Caribbean Sea, and that's typically not the case with people who uh, study or know the oceans and the seas. Um, so I am a highlander who studies lowlands and, uh, and seafaring societies, um, and that gives me sort of like a, 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 a distance um, and sometimes that's good professionally to, you know, get to know, uh, things from afar, uh, and with a little detachment, maybe quote unquote objectivity. Um, but it is also, you also lose something, right? Like the actual sense of what it means to live close to the sea or, or out at sea, which is something crucial to the sub- subjects, historical subjects that I study. I think I will never be able to get that. Um, so there's that, you know, there is a sort of like a, a, a space between 
or a distance between the spaces and the peoples that I study, especially in this book and my own personal life, right, uh, as, a, as a highlander from the Andes mountains of Colombia. Um, but yeah, it was there really that my sort of like calling, I guess, if you want to call it, to history and historical research really started. Um, I uh, was born in a very small town in the cool highlands outside of the city of Medellin. Um, so a very sort of like quiet and relatively peaceful place uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s when most of Colombia wasn't that peaceful. Um, but it was an interesting place where I always had to think a lot about um, just, I guess, in retrospect, really sort of like society and culture and religion. Um, and this is because first, I was born there, but I wasn't from there. My family, both of, both of my families were not from that town. Um, I had arrived, uh, I, I was born there because my mother um, was a public school, school teacher and she had been transferred there. there. Um, so, you know, I ended up being born in a town where my family roots were not located. And so in a way, I was an outsider. So I had to think about what it meant to be from there because I was born there and grew up there and went to school there. And my family, my friends were from there, but my families weren't from there. So that put me in a weird category uh, in terms of how you belong in a community. And this is a very, very small, tiny community where everybody knows each other. So, um, so I had to think about what it meant to be a member of a community or not um, from a very early age. Uh, I think I was, that was a process that wasn't very self-conscious. Uh, I wasn't very self-conscious about it in the early years of my life, but eventually I came to really sort of like think about it more, more thoroughly. Um, so that's one element, right? The other element, and, and, and this is odd, but, you know, maybe we, we'll, we'll talk more about these. Uh, uh, this also has to do with the historical subjects that I that I study. The other element is that I wasn't baptized in a country in a place where everybody was baptized, because Colombia is an overwhelmingly Catholic um, uh, country. But for reasons that have to do with my mother's idiosyncrasy, um, I wasn't baptized, which also and probably more than anything else set me apart from everybody else in this town. So I was an odd kid uh, who actually got picked on by other kids because I was not, not a member of the spiritual community. Um, and so, in a way, uh, these two elements, right, like being from there but not really being from there, and being baptized, not baptized in a place where everybody just took it for granted that you were a full member of the, of the community of the saints, uh, which is what baptism makes you. Uh, these two things really sort of like gave me a, a, an outsider type of standing uh, that, again, in retrospect, is quite interesting and I think led me to think about just society and, and how people belong in communities and society in ways that maybe most people weren't particularly prepared to, uh, to think about. Um, and, you know, eventually I made it to college and I studied history uh, mostly because the, the particular university where I wanted to go to college uh, offered history as the sole social sciences slash humanities career and that's the path that I wanted to follow and so you know I ended up being a historian um, but uh, yeah as a consequence I also ended up maybe thinking uh, uh, in in new ways about my own my own childhood but then in, in definitely new ways and very exciting ways I think about about uh, 
Colombia, Colombian history and Latin American history and Caribbean history. Hmm. So how did you come to study privateers? Um, clearly, you know, Cartagena being a Colombian, having, having the opportunity to visit maybe one of the coastal cities um, to study or to visit for tourism. I mean, you're, it's, it's, it's well known how important Cartagena is as a former colonial port. But as you said before, you're from the interior. You're you're from your family's from the highlands. You're you're not from the the lowlands of the Caribbean. So how how did those um, topics merge? Right. So the other, I guess, there's another family idiosyncrasy, so to speak, in a in an era in which in a place in which not not a lot of people traveled uh, uh, back then uh, or went on vacations. Um, that wasn't really a, a thing in, in the town where I was, where I, where I grew up. Uh, my family was fortunate enough to have friends and relatives uh, living on the Caribbean lowlands of Colombia, uh, down near the uh, Gulf of Morrosquillo and near Cartagena. And so um, when I was growing up, we went down there uh, every so often. Um, and I mean, I still remember the first time that we did go. And as I said, the first time that I, that I saw the ocean, um, but it became a thing for us to go down there. So I became, I was fortunate enough to become aware, one, that that there was sort of like, you know, a world beyond our, our own sort of like provincial, quote unquote, you know, spaces. But two, I was also pretty aware from early on that these places had a culture that was, if if still part of Colombia and in many ways related and similar to my own culture, it was still very, very different from my own, right? This was a place where people had very, very different access, where people had very different habits. Everyday life was very different. The way they have, you know, from, from like having breakfast in the morning to like how you socialize with other people, all of that was very different. So I guess I became aware of cultural difference and cultural relativity in particular by comparing and, be, and and living between, not between these two spaces, but really sort of like knowing these two large uh, uh, cultural spaces of, of Colombia. So Caribbean Colombia, uh, the lowlands of the north of Colombia, in a place like Cartagena in particular, were part of my sort of like imagination from early on. And of course, you know, once I studied history in college, I, I came to realize uh, the complexities and this and the and the and the texture right of what you mentioned before right that that importance of Cartagena as a as a port town um, in the north of Colombia during the uh, three hundred years of Spanish uh, colonialism in in the in the in Colombia and the Caribbean um, and later on when I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan I sort of like came back to Cartagena via Haiti. Um, by studying with uh, Julius Cott, who is a great uh, scholar, who back then was a, one of my professors at Michigan, by studying Haiti with him, and Haiti in the age of the Haitian Revolution in particular, I went back to Cartagena to the extent that I realized how important the connections between those two places were. Um, and so I was prepared to see Cartagena before I went to study uh, uh, to, to, you know, to graduate school at Michigan. Um, but I ended up looking at Cartagena through the lens of Haiti and Haitian history. 
Um, and so that was quite, quite uh, interesting, right? A, a, a very interesting sort of like, uh, you know, epistemic, right? And, and, and methodological even type of observation. I was quite excited to, to learn the, the background to part of your title because of those of us who are familiar with Julian Scott's work, um, maybe we were familiar with it when it was a dissertation. It's now been published, The Common Wind, the, the, the use of his term, the masterless, and, and it's, in your, it's in your title. So you've, you've shared kind of a, a little bit of a snippet of how you came to frame your own work um, against this kind of larger frame of Haiti and this kind of revolutionary Atlantic um, time period. I'm curious to get us moving into the argument of your book. I'm, I'm, I would love to have you walk us through how privateers in particular um, became um, the center of your historical study. And in and in addition, how they relate to this project of independence as it is emerging. And I think you do a beautiful job for perhaps um, readers who are unfamiliar with the kind of multifaceted, um, very quickly moving landscape of the independence process in the northern um, you know, portion of South America, what we think of today as uh, New Granada or Colombia and even Venezuela, um, how you can kind of frame that for our listeners, um, what the relationship is between the privateers and their, their relation to the, the project of independence as it plays out in Cartagena. Right. So um, maybe let me make to sort of like uh, sketch, you know, that framework. Let me step back a little bit and actually go back to the sort of like what I consider the origins between that relationship uh, or the origins of that relationship between Cartagena and Haiti, right? Between this port town on the north of Colombia and the, and the uh, island um, of Hispaniola in general, but, you know, the, 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 the portion of the island that is Haiti today. Um, since, you know, the island is shared by both Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, so let me first say that, yeah, the origins, the relationship is really interesting because it starts really at the, at the very birth of Haiti, which was then called Saint-Domingue, a French colony, as a slave French colony. Um, that part of the island of Hispaniola was more or less uh, inhabited. There were people there, to be sure, uh, native uh, Caribbean peoples, right? Native Native uh, Americans uh, 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 who who were still there. Um, some of them there were uh, runaway um, uh, slaves, some mm, soldiers who had escaped from different regiments, you know, military regiments, smugglers. It was a relatively lawless place, right? Not to the extent that it was uh, uh, chaotic, because there was an order to that to that early society, but to the extent that there, the, the representatives of the law weren't really there. Uh, but when French colonialists come up with the idea to set up a systematic uh, slave plantation on that island that would be geared towards producing sugar and other uh, cash crops, and to make as much money as possible with the but with the work of enslaved people. When they decided, to, when a group of different peoples got together to do that, um, something that they participated in was the taking of the city of Cartagena uh, by French forces and French, basically, you know, 
uh, pirates uh, in the in the 1690s, right at the end of the 17th century. So it was a lot of people from that island who were already there, as well as adventurers from France who came to the Caribbean with the intention of getting money to start a plantation society, and they went to Cartagena, blockaded Cartagena, took over the city of Cartagena, and stole the equivalent of probably hundreds of millions of dollars today, right? And set off with that money, went back to early Saint-Domingue, and with that money, with that initial capital, so to speak, began to establish the greatest, what would become the greatest slave plantations in the Caribbean for, the, for, for most of the rest of the 1700s. So it's, that's the first connection, right? Basically, huge parts of the capital that founded Saint-Domingue, the colony of Saint-Domingue, came from the sacking of Cartagena uh, by the uh, Baron de Pointy and his, and his freebooters, basically, in the, in the late 1600s. Um, but again, the connection here is really important because that new society that is born at the, at the, at the, uh, in the early 1700s, again, is a slave society. And so... Most of the people who will be living in San Domingo's slaves, right, who come, uh, who are who are kidnapped in Africa, brought across the Caribbean, and, and made to and made them forced to work on these emerging cane cane fields. So that's the, the the first connection, and the enslaved population is right there, in not in the background but in the foreground, right? They are they are the the most uh, important sort of like social element to the story. Then. A few generations later, um, following the French Revolution, right, and beginning in the early 1790s, um, these enslaved population in a series of, you know, very variegated uh, uh, events uh, joins what we, the series of, you know, events that we now uh, call the Haitian Revolution. Um, they um, are actually able to liberate themselves, right, after a number of, uh, uh, very, very bloody affairs. By the early 1800s, slavery has disappeared in the island of Saint-Domingue. Saint-Domingue has now become the independent country of Haiti. Um, and furthermore, the new leaders of the independent country of Haiti, who, you know, are very, like any leadership of any country, have various different ambiguous political agendas and positions, um, have uh, in spite of that ambiguity, have actually a, a, a policy of sort of like stimulating freedom for other enslaved peoples. And this policy sort of like materializes itself, for example, in allowing people of color from other islands and other places to arrive in Haiti and become free citizens of that, of that new country. But the other policy that they have um, is that they are actually... Once Spanish-American societies begin to rise up against Spanish domination, Spanish colonial uh, power, they lend a hand, right? They give help to those, to, those, to those new emerging revolutions, most of which are really small revolutions going on in an atomized fashion, right? There's a, re- a revolution going on in Caracas. There's the one in Cartagena, which is the one I talk about in, in the book. And there is other uprisings elsewhere. But eventually some of these early atomized revolutionaries realized that they can sort of like have political relationship with Haiti and that Haiti is willing to help people who are rising up against uh, colonialism, uh, but also people who are uh, sort of like shaking 
the yoke the, the yoke of slavery too. And this is exactly what's going on in Cartagena, where there is a coalition of people, both free and slaves, people of color and white people as well, who for various reasons want to reevaluate the relationship with Spain. A lot of them want to get rid of Spanish power altogether. Some of them want to come to a new arrangement. Eventually, the people who want full independence from Spain win this back and forth. Um, and in 1811, 1812, Cartagena becomes an independent republic. Um, and then that relationship with Haiti really kicks in, right? People from Haiti come to Cartagena and Cartagena and people from Cartagena go to Haiti. Um, and a lot of those former slaves and the descendants of former slaves from Haiti who are very, very skilled seafarers, right? Who are seamen, right? Who are people who can be sailors, who are people who can turn themselves into corsairs or privateers, which is basically pirates with an authorization, began to flock to Cartagena, and Cartagena gives them uh, an authorization, right, a letter of mark, uh, an official permit to go and attack Spanish ships at sea, right, Spanish merchant uh, vessels, uh, especially off the island of Cuba, on behalf of Cartagena, which is now a revolutionary state, waging a way, uh, an irregular war against, against Spain, right? So that's the third element, right? There is a privateering force and a privateering policy that forms in Spanish-speaking Cartagena that is nevertheless completely sort of like based on French and Creole uh, uh, speakers, right? who come from Haiti because they have this experience of sort of like libertarian tendencies or liberty, you know, seeking tendencies uh, because they need to make a living, but also because they have the experience of being privateers uh, and, and, and of being sailors. And so they, they become basically a very valuable source of uh, 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 labor, but also political support um, in, in the period between 1812 and 1815. Uh, which is when this small revolutionary state of Cartagena is enacting its privateering policy in the Caribbean. So, you know, there is there, there is sort of like we come back full circle, right? Uh, uh, Cartagena is connected with the origins of Haiti as a slave society, and it is also connected with the demise of Haiti or San Domingo as a slave society uh, in very, very interesting and compelling ways. That's a, you know, on two points, um, it's fascinating the way you talk about the, that circulation, right? The origin and the demise. And, and it's very useful, I think, for those of us who teach in the classroom and teach, you know, the age of Atlantic uh, revolutions and look at Spanish America. But I also um, think that what's really, really powerful about your work is bringing to our attention that the use of privateers and privateering could be um, another form of um, the, the kind of larger kind of military campaign, the larger, the untold story of the independence movement. We often don't think about um, kind of this kind of maritime base, irregular warfare. And you said earlier that really even kind of having a, 
uh, kind of a, a strong attention towards this Atlantic world where Haiti is um, central um, for your thinking. And this project came at your time at the University of Michigan as a student of Julian Scott. But I, I'm, I'm also wondering, how did you come to see this in the, in the historiography or in the archive? Because so much has been written about the independence years, and and often it, it, it doesn't appear to me to have that strong, kind of maritime seafaring, um, kind of positionality to it. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, it's really very not very often that we see narratives or, you know, uh, um, tellings of the history of South American independence and Spanish American independence more, more, more broadly as a, as a history with a strong maritime component. Uh, so maybe, maybe I should start there, right? Um, um, I think that uh, in, in graduate school, right, studying with Julia Scott, with Rebecca Scott, and, and, but also just like revisiting uh, the Colombian uh, history books that were written, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years about the independence of Colombia, right? Like, uh, just looking at that historiography, right, at that body of scholarship of the last generation, basically, uh, it, did, it did become very clear to me that there was an element of the story that was missing. Um, we knew that Cartagena had had a quite interesting um, privateering policy and we sort of knew, right, judging from those books, that body of scholarship, that that policy had been in direct connection with Haiti. But there wasn't much to the story. There was not a lot of uh, texture to that story. People just sort of like mentioned it in passing in their, in their, in their, in their work, in their research. Um, and I realized that there was a story, a larger story to be told. And not only that, but that that story could lead us to think differently about the process of revolution and independence in, in, in Cartagena in particular and Colombia more generally and maybe even the north of South America. Um, so, so you're definitely right that there's not a lot of, uh, there, there's that sort of like maritime component um, to the process of independence in, in, in South America and Latin America more broadly. It's, it's, it's often uh, ignored. Which there's just not a lot of um, work on that. Um, but at the archive, which, which you also mentioned, right, at the archives, when you go and look at primary sources, right, documents from that era uh, that were handwritten or published in print at the time, you realize how important that component was, right? Um, so maybe, you know, like if you go to Cartagena itself, you're not going to find a lot of stuff because the archives there disappear, Um before the revolution, the archives were already in really bad shape uh, because the weather was just not leading to the conservation of documents, but also because uh, people just did not really pay that much attention uh, in, in, in many ways um, to these documents. Um, and then after the revolution, at the end of the early revolutionary moment in Cartagena, at the end of this state of Cartagena that, that, that my book talks about, um, the revolutionaries themselves burned a lot of the documents because that was evidence of their involvement, right, in treason against Spain. So there's not a lot of documents there. But because the privateers acting on behalf of Cartagena went everywhere around the Caribbean, right, they went to Haiti, as we know, but they also went to Jamaica. They, went, they also went to New Orleans. 
Uh, they were even up in Baltimore, for example, right? So when we go to archives and libraries in those places, then we can find uh, um, paper, their paper trail, so to speak, right? We can find traces of their presence and their history uh, in press newspaper reports, right? Press reports from the era, uh, private letters where people talk about them, uh, notarial documents where people had to uh, maybe file uh, insurance claims, right, before local authorities because their their merchandise had been stolen at sea uh, uh, by Cartagena privateers. So in those types of uh, uh, relatively indirect evidence, right, we 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 come to know about these about these privateers. Um, the archives in Jamaica and Cuba, for example, are very very important to to reconstruct this history, right, because. Uh, in, on the one hand, in Jamaica, uh, there is sort of like a very flexible policy to, towards these uh, agents, right? So they, they go to Jamaica for different reasons, and people write about them as they're there, about, about these privateers. So looking at those, we can, we can learn about them. But also because some of the uh, ships that are taken at sea by Cartagena privateers are British, right? Have British, the British flag, so they, the proceedings about these uh, about these uh, attacks, these privateer attacks at sea, those proceedings are at the archives there. And they tell us a, a, a huge part of the story. In Cuba, on the other hand, there's also a lot of documents that tell us a part of the story because the authorities there are very, very concerned about these attacks on behalf of Cartagena because they're very serious, actually, right? Because they are undermining um, commerce in and out of Cartagena in a very, very serious way, especially in 1813, 1814. Um, so there's also a lot of documents there. So the, archi the archival presence of these maritime contingent these mari and, and, and this maritime dimension of South American independence is quite heavy, although it is not heavy in the, in the historiography, right? in the history books that have been, that have been written about these, these processes. Um, but then this leads, at, leads us to the other element that I wanted to mention, which is why. Why we have all of these documents, right, in archives around the Caribbean, but also in Europe. There's some information in France and some information in Spain as well and, and, and in the UK. Um, but why, if there is actually tangible information out there, why is there not a tangible presence of these maritime dimension and maritime social contingent, right, of these early processes of independence in, in, in Cartagena and Colombia. Um, and I think there's many reasons or many potential answers to that question, but I think that the sort of like overarching explanation has to do uh, with the national and nationalist framing of history, right, that has prevented historians um, from looking at these at these elements in the history uh, uh, of the origins of the uh, Spanish-American republics. And so because the sort of like 19th century positivist and nationalist view that we inherited, right, is that the revolutions against Spain were carried out, were done by these sort of like already formed national groups, mature groups that were sort of like coming out of uh, their political uh, uh, infancy and kicking out uh, Spain, right, as a manifestation of their of their of their political uh, maturation as a new nation, right? Um, that view that we inherited, right, from 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 the 18th from the 19th century, 
basically tells us that the nation, in this case Colombia, the Colombian nation already existed, that it was subjugated by Spain, and then in a very sort of like straightforward, clear-cut process, that early Colombian nation subjugated by Spain sort of like rose to majority and in that process kicked out the Spaniards, right? And so like the confrontation is very clear there, right? Colombians versus Spaniards. But that's not the case, right? That sort of like interpretation, when you think about it critically and when you think about it looking at the primary sources of the time, uh, that interpretation basically holds no water, right? Because uh, there wasn't a Colombian nation uh, before the revolution. It, the revolution of independence is the first process or the first step in the larger process of the creation of a Colombian nation. And so as a result, those early moments, the protagonists of those early moments were not Colombians, were Spaniards who were deciding that they didn't want to be Spaniards anymore, right? Um, slaves and free people of color, right, who were interested in freedom and maybe more equality, right, legal equality, and in the process realized that a way to get there was to, su- to support the people who didn't want to uh, uh, live under uh, a Spanish regime anymore, right, a Spanish form of government and a monarchical form of government, but maybe instead of that, a representative republic that was independent. Um, in that process, there is also a lot of people who come from other countries, right? There is European veterans of the Napoleonic Wars who come to Colombia to fight for their own version and idea of liberty, right? That they that they that they have uh, uh, in their own political imagination. Um, and there's all of these former slaves, right, who are uh, privateers, right, who are sailors who come to Cartagena to fight uh, against Spain on behalf of Cartagena and who take, in order to do that, take on Cartagena citizenship. So all of these Haitian and other people, you know, uh, black and brown folk from the French Caribbean who come to Cartagena to work as privateers, they receive Cartagena citizenship, right? Uh, not Colombian citizenship because that doesn't exist yet, right? But they are not sort of like what you will think as a Colombian, right? Early representative of the Colombian nation, right? A lot of, most of them don't, e- don't even speak Spanish, right? Um, and so the lines separating, right? Uh, Spaniard from Colombian really don't exist yet. And the lines sort of like defining a national community, clear-cut national community, are not there yet. But because we inherited this false idea that that was the case, that back then you could very clearly see and differentiate Colombian versus Spaniard, right? National versus foreign, right? Because we inherited that framework, then we didn't pay attention to all of those things that go against that framework, that sort of like falsify that narrative, right? And the uh, privateers from the French Caribbean and other places are are basically prime examples, right, of how that narrative, clear-cut narrative, is just not, not, it doesn't really adhere to, to reality. And so I think basically, right, this national framework to understand the process of the independence is what uh, is what prevented historians for so many years from looking at these historical subjects and characters that were crucial to the independence process, but that did not fit the preconceived, right, sort of like mold of who the freedom fighters and the nation makers were. Um, and so in that same regard, uh, we end up with a version of 
the independence process that is strictly land-bound, right? That has basically as its limits um, the the sort of like the the current borders of the nation state, right? Of the Republic of Colombia, right? As opposed to a not so land-bound process and much more connected with other countries and other nations, right? And other uh, political communities. Uh, as well as a process much more connected with the sea and the stuff that was going on at sea, right? Both overseas and at sea. Uh, and so what my book tries to do is to sort of like break out of those molds too, right? The national narrative and the land-bound narrative of how these communities came to be and to introduce all of these new elements, right? The maritime aspect, uh, the messiness of the political communities at play during that process uh, and the crucial role played by these uh, by these. Uh, uh, privateers, right? Uh, people of color, mostly from the French Caribbean. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At different points in your work, you use the process I would call of contestation to show, you know, the the, the, the potential of um, what was happening at a given point. So, for example, at the, at the same time that you're having the Republic of Cartagena um, welcome and um, grant citizenship to privateers who are going to attack these Spanish vessels, um, there is a debate, you know, that the egalitarian and radical project forming in Cartagena may be a little too radical. And there are those who you point out um, who are, um, are at unease with the privateers. You, um, in your development of talking about the privateers and their actions um, around Cuba, um, Cuba starts to emerge as kind of the grounds of the Spanish um, kind of royalism and, and their efforts to integrate themselves and expand at this point in the early part of the 19th century into plantation slavery, um, harnessing kind of from after. Um, harnessing after the Haitian Revolution, and then the revolutionary Haiti is is viewed as this kind of place that is um, a haven for you know a variety of different people, some of whom are involved in radical politics, some of whom um, are kind of libertarian in their nature, these seafaring people. Um, but then you use it as a site to kind of explore this this other kind of contestation over the future of what will happen um, to the project of independence to making a nation state when you enter in Simon Bolivar and this kind of confrontation he has with a pivotal historical figure in your book, um, the French privateer Louis Ari. And I'm curious to have you, have you think a little bit about um, that particular moment between um, Auri and Bolivar um, as a moment that helped um, you, you know, kind of come to terms to how um, Colombia um, at, at the beginning and middle projects of their independence movement, how that kind of helped to shape um, why the maritime elements have fallen by the, by the way, you know, by the way side, essentially. 
Yeah, I think that that sort of like contrast, I mean, you're establishing here um, a couple of very, very interesting contrasts, right, around these processes of contestation that you that you mentioned, uh, but, but also around these sort of like open-ended nature of the very process of political transformation uh, in these early moments uh, of independence uh, in, 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 in uh, the former right, Spanish empire. And those, sort of that, those contrasts, I think, are crucial to my interpretation of the story, and I think that's clear in the book too. Uh, but there's more to the story, and I think that's part of what you're hinting at, especially when, you, when we think about the contrast between people like Bolivar, right, who's the rises to become the top leader of the movements for independence in, in, in most of South America, or a good chunk of South America, especially the Andean part of South America. And on the other hand, Louis Michel Ori, right, this, uh, this uh, French sort of like adventurous, romantic type of adventurous, right, who's a uh, veteran, young veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, who comes to, uh, who, who rises to become probably the most famous privateer commander of, of, of Cartagena. And I'll go back to that contrast a little bit in a minute, because I also want to mention the other contrast, right, so we won't lose sight of it, which is the contrast between Cuba and Haiti. Right and Cartagena sort of like allows us to see that contrast and how that contrast is important for the rest of these of these processes, right? Because as you mentioned, in this moment in the early 1800s, Cuba and Haiti are undergoing massive, massive transformations, political, economic, and social. In that Haiti, as we now know, has ceased to be a large and slave-based, you know, plantation society and become sort of like a safe heaven and a radical uh, political society uh, that is internally divided, but that offers a lot of opportunities and new perspectives for a lot of people, including, including to, to people from Cartagena. And then on the other hand, Cuba, which ha- has been a society in which, yeah, there's slavery, but that is now in the process of transforming itself into a much, much more sophisticated and much harsher uh, slave society, right, and plantation economy, uh, and that in and, and in that process, it becomes the, the the sort of like the royalist tendencies and convictions of its elite, as well as many other people living in, in that island of Cuba, become entrenched, right, and so Cuba goes on to continue as a Spanish colony for most for basically the rest of the 19th century, right, but it also becomes a very very uh, uh, as I said sophisticated and and harsh slave society, slave-based society, right? And so Cuba and Haiti are transforming uh, in very radical ways, but in a sort of like, you know, one is the negative image of the other. One is sort of like dropping slavery while the other one is embracing it. One is dropping royalism and colonialism and the other one is embracing it. Um, and and in that, and then so in that, in that sort of like contrast, a place like Cartagena basically has... A choose has a choice to make, right? So to speak, right? If you if you allow me, they can either go the Cuba way or the Haiti way, and that's a little simplistic. And so let me sort of like maybe complicate it a little more, right? A lot of these uh, the patrician families, right? The families of rich people, white people in, in in Cartagena had family and personal connections in Cuba, right? Some of which were several hundreds uh, hundreds of years old, right? So they saw Cuba as part of their own political and moral community. Uh, but once Cartagena becomes independent, those historical 
and cultural ties with Cuba have to be severed, right? Have to, those links become dissolved. So people from Cuba, people from Cartagena cannot travel to Cuba anymore in the way that they used to, right? Uh, but now all of a sudden, uh, uh, they have this growing connection with, with Haiti, right? So they, there is this interesting contrast and this sort of like double geopolitical movement, right, of seizing uh, 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 connections with Cuba and embracing new connections with Haiti, with the emerge, especially with the south of Haiti, the Republic of Haiti, um, at, this, at, this, at this point. So that's, the, that, that's a, a contrast that is key to understand the type of history that I'm building in, in this book, right? And like who were the people who were making these connections possible, as well as these uh, uh, sort of like breaking of ties. And, and the answer to that question is like the most important people making that possible were the privateers themselves, right? The people who were making sure that um, commerce with Cartagena, with, uh, with Cuba was disrupted and that uh, commercial vessels out of Cuba were uh, looted at sea, right? And that, that bounty was taken back to Cartagena. But they were also the people connecting, for the most part, right, the south of Haiti with Cartagena. They were going back and forth all the time. Uh, they were creating uh, new familial and new social social links, and Cartagena even deployed a small diplomatic uh, corps, so to speak, right to to Haiti. It had diplomatic agents that did uh, business on behalf of Cartagena in the in the south of Haiti, in the Republic of Haiti. Um, and so, right to go back to the larger concept that you were talking about, right this type of contestation and this type of sort of like back and forth or conflict between egalitarian and radical tendencies as well as sort of like more liberal or independent and, and, and um, sort of um, pro-Republican pro, uh, tendencies on in, in emerging in Cartagena. Um, and then sort of like the opposite, right? Royalist and and sort of like uh, not egalitarian and and slave and slavery embracing tendencies in 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 Cuba, uh, that opposition, that contest, or those types of sort of like avenues that these emerging societies can take, um, that story I think is very very well. Um, it's very it's 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 we know that story with certain element certain elements of uh, of texture, right, and specificity for the case for the case of Cartagena. But something that I want to um, sort of like emphasize is that by looking at the messiness of this process, we realize that, yeah, there are several avenues that are open to people, some of which are in opposition, right? In binary opposition almost. But the process itself is open-ended. So we don't really know uh, uh, where things might have led. People back then did not not know where things would, would lead, right? And so, yeah, there is... A lot of enthusiasm about political transformation in Cartagena. That enthusiasm looks like a rejection of Cuba and an embracing of Haiti. Uh, but it is more complicated than that, right? It is, to a certain extent, it is that. But people in Cartagena don't really know what's happening with the Spanish Empire to which they have belonged for the last 300 years, right? They don't know if Spain is going to be able to sort of like get its act, to act together again and come back and, and stop all of these processes, right? Uh, some people think that there might still be a possibility of striking a new type of political deal with Spain, right? That maybe you can 
sort of like be, sort of like go down the road of, road of home rule and have more autonomy and more freedom to enter into contact, especially uh, commercial contact with other um, with other with other uh, nations, without necessarily rejecting fully rejecting uh, the ties, cultural and political ties with Spain. Right? Uh, some other people think that it has that the that the relationship, political relationship with Spain, has to be completely completely uh, um, uh, ended. Right? But what that might, the, the type of political configuration that rejecting their polit- the, 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 the ties with Spain would lead to, that's also, right, that's not, that doesn't necessarily lead to a specific new type of political configuration. Some people think that maybe um, a, a, a type of, you know, a state like the, uh, like the, the states that formed the new United States of America, that that's the, the road that they should go down. Um, that Cartagena should be a um, small state with a lot of sovereignty and independence, right? Uh, uh, from the rest of other for newly formed states in, in, in Northern South America, right? For some people, this might be not the road that they should follow, right? For some people, Cartagena should be independent, but only a, as, a, as, a, as a province of a larger much more powerful country, right? That would be called eventually Colombia. So, the all of there's many roads that are open, many possibilities that people are imagining, right? Um, and so, the crisis of the Spanish monarchy on the one hand, and the enthusiasm about political change on the other, do not automatically lead, right, to what we know today as the independent nation state or a central centralized republican form of government they actually lead to could lead right and did lead to different to different types of political configurations and so cartagena because it, there is so much excitement about egalitarian and radical policies in cartagena during this early period of independence cartagena does uh, become an independent republic that is uh, governed uh, initially by a, uh, a system of um, you know, by a constitution and elected representatives, right? And so it's a representative, uh, popular type of representative uh, uh, democracy, though a, a, a little limited. Um, but then at the same time that Cartagena is that, that, that type of society, uh, to, this, to the south of Cartagena, the, st- the state of Cundinamarca, the new state of Cundinamarca, is initially a, a, a constitutional monarchy, right? And so they are uh, yes, now autonomous, but they still hope to keep t- some sort of tie with Spain, right? And they still hope to keep the paradigm of a monarchical society, right? Or a society governed by a monarch as their political paradigm. Because those ideas were very old and entrenched and, and people did not, they were not, it wasn't easy to give up those old, those old habits and ideas. And so it's very, very open-ended. Uh, but in the case of Cartagena, we see that uh, among these various choices and options, the way of radical, sort of like egalitarian, uh, popular representative democracy, right, with republican elements is very, very, uh, it's, very co- it's very popular, right? There's a lot of support for that in Cartagena. Uh, and eventually, sort of like a radical coalition of people come to control Cartagena for most of that early space, right, between 1812 and 1815. Um, and so 
it's also no accident, in my view, that Cartagena's openness to Haiti and its openness to give citizenship to these privateers of color from the Caribbean, right, happens in tandem, right, or as a manifestation of that larger sort of like political choice, right, of having a, a more sort of like egalitarian and radical type of type of society. Um, but again, right, to, to emphasize the, uh, my point, that doesn't mean that that was the only choice. And it doesn't mean that most people were pushing for that from the beginning. The process is very contested, right, as you said, um, and, and it's very open-ended. And yet the period in which the privateers um, are, uh, you know, a, a primary or one of many tactics um, that the Republicans in, in Cartagena can use against Spain will will eventually come to an end. And, and the end is, is sort of, um, it's not abrupt. <laughs> it, 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 it is um, ongoing and it's kind of a little bit dispersed. And, and I was hoping that you could, you know, talk a little bit about um, your thinking about the turn away from um, privateering or at least the turn mm-hmm. away from French speaking, multiracial, multilingual privateers um, as the as the process for independence um, moves mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, I think that's sort of like an emblematic, um, it's a very emblematic moment and a very emblematic process of how these sort of like messy political processes eventually brought under a certain form of control and how all of this messiness that I explore in the book is eventually uh, encompassed, right, and sort of like controlled by a new different type of emerging political project that is nonetheless connected to this early early moment, but that brings some sort of new order. And I think the contrast between Bolivar and Ori it's, it's precisely encapsulates that, ty- that type of move, right? That new, uh, that new political drive or that new political uh, um, uh, transformation that happens, uh, that happens eventually. And so basically to clarify the, cr- the, the chronology a little bit, right? Between... Between 1810, let's say, and late 1815 and early 1860s, 1816, uh, excuse me, um, Cartagena becomes right this independent republic with very sort of like you know radical tendencies. But it is not the only independent small republic, right? There's another. There's other republics, right, in 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 this region. Uh, there's also Cundinamarca, which we mentioned, right, which at first wasn't a republic; it was independent, but it thought of itself as a, as a, and had a constitution, right? The first constitution of the Spanish-speaking world, actually, from 1811, before the Cádiz constitution, uh, that was a, a monarchical constitution, right? They hoped to be free um, and independent, but they hoped that, at least in theory, that a, a, a legitimate monarch would come, right, to, to, to eventually would come to, to occupy, right, uh, the space of sovereignty in that in that new new polity. So that happens between again 1810, 11, and 1815, 16. That's and that's a process that we that we that we historians call the interregnum, right? Why the interregnum? Because it's between the first sort of like Spanish uh, government that lasts for about three hundred years. And then another new iteration, a restoration, restoration of the Spanish throne that begin, that starts in 1816, 
and goes all the way to 1819, 1820, depending on where you look at, but to like 1819. And so Cartagena, during the Interregnum, again, it's one of many mini-republics. Some of them eventually come together and form a federation. They imagine that federation looking like the United States. But then in 18, late 1815 and early 1816, there is the restoration, i.e. Uh, Spanish troops arrived, people who still support the, the Spanish form of government and the Spanish monarch rise up and support these, these troops. And these early states are quashed, right? These early states disappear, um, including Cartagena. In fact, Cartagena is the, as one of the most important ones and as the sort of like gate to South America is the first one to be, to be obliterated quite violently, actually, in, in, in late 1815. Um, so there, then there, the, we have the period of the Spanish Restoration, uh, the Spanish form of government um, um, is, is back in place. Uh, and this period lasts from 1816 to, to about 1819. Uh, it's a very, uh, it's somewhat very violent process if, if, if compared with the restorations in Europe that are happening at the same time. Uh, 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 this, is, this is quite violent. A lot of people get uh, banished. A lot of people get shot, right? They get killed. Um, most of the leaders of the independence of Cartagena, most of the leaders of the Cartagena Republic are actually are, are eliminated, right? They have to flee. Uh, a lot of them died at sea because they were they got caught up in a storm. But a lot of them are basically shot by, by, by Spanish troops. And so that early generation, that early, those early leaders of independence basically in Cartagena disappear, right? That that elite thins out quite dramatically during the restoration. Um, but in 1819, after a long drawing process, um, the Spanish troops are once again defeated and displaced and, 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 and pro-independence and pro-republican forces are like gathered momentum again. Um, and a new polity is formed, right? But this polity is quite different from those early polities, those early societies that we, that we talked about, right? During the interregnum. This new society, it's not a series of small states and small atomized um, uh, countries but rather a large centralized country, right, that is called the Republic of Colombia, that comes together and sort of like crystallizes between 1819 and 1821, um, and that is, again, centralized uh, and not, and not uh, made up of different sort of like, uh, uh, you know, federal entities. And so their politics, uh, both because they follow this political doctrine of centralization, but also because the leaders of these, uh, many of the leaders of these new, in these new polities, new country, the Republic of Colombia, are military, uh, military uh, uh, people, right? Uh, their polities and their and their conception, right, of, of independence and what the future country that they're forming should look like. Uh, 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 those elements are very different if compared with the early elements of, say, Cartagena, right, where the leaders were not uh, military people. Um, but rather, uh, you know, popular leaders, artisans, but also lawyers, a lot of lawyers and priests, right, who are interested in independence. And so their political imaginations are somewhat different. Um, again, Cartagena was very interested in being its own state, right, relatively small, and trading with the outside war and creating connections with the outside war. And by contrast, this new sort of like expanding centralized Republic of Colombia is very interested in um, 
being big and expanding because it is interested in expanding independence. It wants to be centralized and very militaristic, so to speak, because it has the project of expanding the boundaries of independence, of bringing independence from Spain and the war against Spain all the way through South America, right? And so that's Bolivar's project, right? Simon Bolivar, who's a Venezuelan military leader. Um, And he goes on to become the president of, of Colombia, and he goes on to materialize to a great extent that dream, that project, right? That, that, that big sort of like um, utopia of having a very strong Colombian republic that is basically in charge of bringing independence to Ecuador and Peru and Bolivia. And they go, Colombian troops go all the way down there, right? Uh, and bring, bring the war to Spain down there and displace uh, Spanish troops there and create new independent, new independent countries. And so we have two very, very contrasting, very dramatically different political projects that are both sociologically uh, sort of like based on different types of societies, right, and different different cohorts, human cohorts, right? Uh, one is looks more like military people. The other one looks more like sort of like a coalition of, yeah, some military people, but a lot of other type of folk or people with other sort of careers and perspectives. Right, uh, one is sort of like centralized and and a little maybe a little more authoritarian, if you will, uh, but also expanding. Right, it has a continental project, right, of liberation for all of South America, and the other one is not so interested in in bringing its own politics to other to other places. And I think Bolivar and Ori are emblematic of those of that contrast. Right, Ori had been. Um, Again, the most famous privateer commander of um, of Cartagena during during the interregnum, during the state of Cartagena, uh, and 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 when Bolivar sort of like finally rises uh, to be being the supreme commander of, of pro independence forces in what is now becoming Colombia, the Republic of Colombia, um, Ori, who's been in exile in the Caribbean, uh, uh, comes to Colombia, right? To this new emerging country of Colombia, hoping that Bolivar will incorporate him in his in his new forces and will will give him Colombian citizenship and and accept him right as a sort of like a, a freedom fighter for this new country, but Bolivar rejects him right for many reasons that we we don't need to go into detail with, but that are really emblematic of that sort of like contrast between those early states, especially Cartagena, with its maritime connections and with its privateering policy, and this new Republic of Colombia that is not so interested in sort of like that maritime war and the, and the privateering, but really more interested in a political continental project, right? Going all the way to Ecuador and Peru and bringing independence down there. Um, and so Bolivar rejects Ori, but that rejection is also emblematic of the rejection called the Colombian rejection, right, of that early history of sort of like motley crews and messy processes and incorporating, you know, people of African descent from the French Caribbean, French and Creole speakers into their into their emerging politics, right? The rejection of Ori is emblematic of a larger social and political rejection um, of uh, privateering, but in particular, right, of Haiti and the Haitian Republic and the people of Haiti. Um, and so Colombia, which right, a lot of people thought had to establish diplomatic relationships, formal diplomatic ties with Haiti, and had to recognize the help 
that Haiti had given to independence, and not just to Cartagena, but to Bolivar himself in his early in his early days as a as a as an independence fighter. Uh, some people think that they that Colombia has to recognize that debt, pay that debt uh, uh, by by sort of like becoming friendly with Haiti. Uh, but in the end, Colombia decides not to do that, right? Uh, in part because there is a, a, a racist uh, uh, emerging attitude, or not, you know, the racism was there, but sort of like there is a reiteration, right, of this idea that people from the French Caribbean who are black, right, who are of African descent, do not really belong in this new Colombian community. And you can see that in the correspondence of the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, in fact, uh, which is kept at the archives in, in, in Bogota. Um, so there is a rejection of Haiti politically, but also sort of like culturally and racially. Um, and, and, and so on the one hand, there's that, but there's also another sort of like larger geopolitical element. There's also a rejection of Haiti because Colombia doesn't want to upset European powers that it expects will recognize its own independence. In other words, because France does not yet recognize the independence of Haiti, Colombia in order to not upset France, doesn't recognize the independence of Haiti by not creating uh, diplomatic contacts with it and rejecting people like Ori, for example. Um, and so this is sort of like part of a larger uh, history of the geopolitical sort of like formations, right, in the Atlantic War and in the Caribbean, uh, in which through a concatenation, right, of factors and decisions and different interests, um, Haiti becomes or is pushed right to the status of a pariah country uh, in the in the in the Americas, and it's not until very very late that Colombia actually recognizes the 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 independence of Haiti by establishing diplomatic contact, formal diplomatic contact with that with that with that country. Um, but it really sort of like starts with that moment uh, when Ori, right, the old French speaking privateer who worked for Cartagena and used to hang out and work with all of these motley crews, former slaves, right? Just mixture of different peoples, right? It starts with that moment, or at least that's a very emblematic moment when, right, he comes back to Cartagena, goes all the way to Bogota, asks Bolivar for incorporation into his forces, right, and to accept his people, and Bolivar rejects him and kicks him out of the country. Um, and, and, and sort of like that rejection in the end, it's sort of like a sad note to end, right? Because it's a rejection that also implies that there were, that this huge role that Haiti played in this in that early moment of independence uh, was was not rec- formally recognized. And so that's another element that explains that nationalist framework that we talked about earlier, right? Why we really didn't know about this story that much, or why even though we sort of knew about it, did not really fully embrace it and try to really write it, right? write about it and research it in different archives and try to think about its implications for the history of Colombia and the Caribbean. Well, it's fascinating. And it's, and it's you know, a part of a, a you're a part of a larger um, scholarly discussion of a number of new works that are helping us to 
re-engage with um, Haiti's interaction with um, Latin America at this time. I think of your work in conjunction with uh, Cristina Soriano's work, um, Ada Ferrer's work, uh, Aileen Helg's work, uh, Ernesto Bassi. And and I'm curious in the future to see what might come out of contemporary geopolitics, you know, what kinds of commemorative and or symbolic gestures may or or may not come from the current governments um, of Venezuela, Colombia, you know, Ecuador, you know, in terms of of this, it's it's perhaps you've heard of some, or, or perhaps we still have to wait and see. Yeah, I think unfortunately there's not a lot of um, uh, that you know the, these type of efforts that historians and scholars are making to sort of like think about the place of Haiti and the Caribbean in the independence of Colombia um, hasn't really made it to that type of, you know, sort of like policy level process. And, 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 or maybe it hasn't, I'm unaware of it, but judging by the celebrations of the bicentennial of the independence, right, uh, um, uh, about a decade ago, uh, as well as the upcoming celebrations of the founding of the Colombian uh, Republic in 1819 and 1821, um, the, the place of Haiti in particular hasn't really been that, that feature, right, in that process. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, yeah, the experts know this, this part of the story, but the policymakers don't necessarily know it. Um, and, and again, that's, I think, because the policymaking continues to be really sort of like framed by the nationalist narrative, which is important for a country and people do it for a reason. And, and, and you know, we all have we all put limits to the things that we can do. And there's always frameworks that we use to understand things. Um, but I think it's always good to break out of those, those frameworks. Uh, and yeah, scholars like the ones that you mentioned who are great dear colleagues of mine, they're all trying to sort of like uh, shake those frameworks and, and get out of those frameworks to, um, to narrate new types of stories, but also to just like try to understand the process of revolution and independence in the Caribbean and South America at the turn of the 19th century in new ways. Absolutely. Well, I, 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 could, I think I could listen to you actually for several hours. You're, you're um, wonderful to talk with, but I, I know I'm taking too much of your time. So I, I would like to end our conversation today to hear um, what, what you might be working on next. Um, are, do you have another maritime-based project? Are you going in a different direction? Um, so I don't really have another maritime project though you know I, st- I remain very interested in Cartagena I'm looking at Cartagena in the 17th century actually in the 1600s but to make to make a, lo- a long story short uh, sort of like the central question and why I'm looking at Cartagena in the 1600s continues to be slavery right and the place of slavery in Latin American history and colonial history uh, but from a very sort of like odd point of view to the extent that what I'm looking into these days is that very category of slavery and who is a slave, which we take for granted, right? We This last hour that we've been speaking, we took that category for granted, right? Like we know who is a slave, right? We talked about slaves and former slaves. But when you look at this issue, right, with more, with, 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 uh, with an eye for legal ambiguity, you realize that the enslavement of people of African descent in the Americas was never a clear-cut legal issue, right? So we usually say, yeah, slavery was... Uh, legal back then, um, but it turns out that the, le- the the legal regime of slavery was way messier than we than we think it is, right? 
And so my whole new project really, or the things that I'm thinking about really sort of like orbit, orbit around the notion of, or the question rather, of who is a slave before the law? Who was a slave before the law? And there is no clear cut answer, as it turns out. So I'm sort of like beginning to destabilize that very notion of slavery. Like we take for granted that people were just straightforward, you know, slaves, that it was a clear cut reality that people will have known who's to separate easily between a slave and a non-slave. Uh, but slave was not a legal category that was that clear. Um, and so in the end, what we end up with is what I'm hoping to end up with is with a more complicated history about uh, uh, slavery from a legal point of view, but also a more complicated narrative, right, about slavery as an act of power um, that was, yeah, underpinned by legal fictions, but underpinned by legal fictions that did not make sense, that did not cohere. Um, and so Cartagena is a great place to start in the 1600s because that's in the early 1600s because that's the time where, for the first time, dozens of thousands of people who are kidnapped in Africa are coming into the Spanish-speaking Americas uh, en masse, right, every year. And so through Cartagena, and so people in Cartagena start thinking about this that we take for granted that many people back then didn't, right? They start thinking about, like, wait, wait, these people who are coming, who, who are they really? Are they slaves back then? Is there a war going on through which we are enslaving them legally? Are they Christians? What are the languages that they speak? And so as scholars, particularly Jesuit priests, begin to think about this in Cartagena, right, that opens up a whole series of questions for us today, right, about how slave regimes, right, were constituted from a legal point of view during the early modern period. Wow. I look forward to seeing the work that comes out of this research um, in the coming years. I want to thank, thank you. you again, Edgardo, for, for doing the interview. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. You can find a link to Edgardo's new book, No Limits to Their Sway, Cartagena's Privateers and the Masterless Caribbean in the Age of Revolutions on New Books Network and Caribbean Studies channel. Until next time.